This is an episode I recorded with Walking Into Shadow with Simon about how to run Mage for the first time as a storyteller. Simon's show is available on twitch.tv slash The Onyx Path and airs every other Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern when he is actively recording new episodes. Check out theonyxpath.com to see upcoming episodes and whether or not there's any Walking Into Shadow in the future. Just a note, we talk a bit about some horror elements and there are slight mentions of gore, but nothing crazy. Also, hello to everyone listening on YouTube. It's probably an aberration, but last month we had 6,000 new listeners over there, which is a lot for us. And I just wanted to say hi and welcome. I try to read every comment people post there and pass the appropriate ones back to hosts and guests so they know what the people on the YouTube side think. If you'd like to get a bit more involved in the Mage the Podcast community, you can join us at discord.me slash Mage the Podcast if Discord is your thing. Or if you'd like to be an executive producer with the perks that entails like extra audio and helping to guide our upcoming episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash Mage the Podcast. And with that, on with the show. So welcome to Walking Into Shadow, Season 2, Episode 1. I am Simon, your host, and this is an introductory series for Mage of the Ascension, focusing on the 20th Anniversary Edition. Tonight, we are talking about a rather major subject, how to be a mage storyteller. Because being a mage storyteller, I wouldn't fully say 100% stretches your limits and abilities as a, as a game master or anything of that sort, but it do, I think it does take a particularly not unique, but flexible viewpoint. I feel to an extent, you sort of have to be that reed that bends with the wind in order to not stress out, uh, vomit and run off screaming into a corner. Because especially if you came to mage from a variety of other games, or uh, like me, it was one of the progressions on your lifetime of gaming, it is different. So joining me tonight is Terry Robinson from Mage the Podcast. Let's talk about storytelling I think in this case, I'm going to use game mastering whenever I'm talking about any other game and storytelling when I'm talking about a world of darkness or specifically Mage, the Ascension game. Let's look at the idea of running a game of game mastering of some sort. And I don't remember every bit of your gaming history, Terry. Um, mine started with, with D&D, so it was very specific game flow and gameplay. To me, if I were approaching Mage now without having run games and read games my my entire life i would probably be looking at it uh, and doing that whole like screaming and running into the wilderness and hiding away from civilization thing because when we all know there's the old old adage of pcs will never do what you expect them to do and when you couple that with their ability to do let's say anything because they have sphere magic or rather your inability to predict what they can do and therefore prepare for it in a sense, uh, not necessarily to railroad, but to have some concept of what may go on. It can be intimidating. Now, this is before we're getting into paradigms, the consensus, all the, the great stuff that makes Mage great, the variety of different belief systems and wrapping your head around magic and science. The same thing mechanically is you have this just human interaction version of I don't know what they're going to do, and I have zero way of fully predicting it. Arguably, you do sort of, because you can look at their sheets and go, okay, they have sphere, life sphere two, they have whatever. To me, it really sort of coalesced when I accepted the fact that what was going to happen was going to happen. And it wasn't that you had to be reactive, but you just had to be able to go with the flow. And maybe the thrust of each session or storyline, even if it was objective-based, like in D&D, go into the dungeon, kill some stuff, get out, rescue the the who's it from the what, whatchamacallit, and 
save the day and get experience points. But when you can surpass that by a simple spell effect, it's really about the journey there, what we learned about ourselves along the way. So when you're coming to it from a different game, what would you advise? What is, what's your perspective on how Mage is different to, to Game Master than other games? One of the tricks that uh, occurs with Mage is the nature of driving action. You're going to have some sort of character creation process, or you're going to have pre-gen characters, whatever. From the start, you're going to have some sort of natural inclination as to what the character's wants are, or you're going to have an idea as to an event that happens to them. You can kind of divide all plots into horizontal plots, character does something, vertical plot, things happen to the character. Uh, either one of those is entirely fine. If you're going to do that more sandboxy approach, then the first thing we need is a very clear understanding of what the character's drives are. The failure I see in a lot of games is a storyteller does not know what their characters are going to do, thus they feel they have to make up everything. You are a storyteller, you're not a physics engine. Your job is not to be able to create arbitrary plot for an eventuality that a player has sprung on you. So you have the mechanics that are provided by the game. You have storyteller advice, input, and setting provided by the game. But on top of that, you also have a social contract of what the players are expected to do and what the storyteller is expected to do. And with Mage, we need to start with that last thing. What is our expectation? So generally when you're pitching it, you're going to say, hey, Mage is a game of supernatural action and magic and the consequences of belief in the modern world or something like that. Okay. And you can start with the description of we're all going to be wizards. Okay. Or you can say we are all going to be members of an elite strike force that is trying to keep endangered beliefs from disappearing. Okay. That's an organizing principle. Alternatively, we are going to represent a global conspiracy that is going to try and crush out subversive elements that are trying to take advantage of fraying human belief. Okay, uh, we are going to represent a 500-year-old compact of mages trying to expand human possibility while preventing the excesses of either chaos or stasis. Okay. All of those have a premise baked into that, and from there you already have inclined your story world in a particular direction. You have planted that seed, and the characters are either going to need to come up with a directive that lines up with that, or they're going to justify why they're not going along. One of the biggest problems that I hear storytellers run into is allowing the tyranny of player preference. So we make the game where we're going to be supernatural rescuers. Okay, first mission, we, we need to get to Kuala Lumpur very quickly, hop on the plane. Well, my character's anti-technology, they wouldn't do that. Okay, how would they get to Kuala Lumpur? They'd probably spend six months on a boat. Okay, I need you to make the character now that can participate in this adventure. Otherwise, you don't get to play tonight. I think one of the first things you need to do as a, as a mage storyteller is kind of establish those boundaries. So that's kind of my first recommendation. The other thing is know ahead of time what direction you think the play may go. Storytelling mage is frequently like driving at night. You don't have to be able to see your destination, but if you can see a hundred yards in front of you at all times, you'll eventually get there. Ways of doing that, nature, demeanor, are going to give you some information as to the why. Characters' backgrounds or backstory is going to provide potential seeds. Oh, they have four dots. 
of Mentor. I should probably know who the Mentor is. They have three dots of contact underworld. Well, this person has some underworld contacts. This person has five dots of firearms. Where did that come from? Or this person has three <laughs> dots of forces. Where did that come from? <laughs> so you start building kind of this index of what are likely directions that you're going to go. And then finally, you always have the option of kind of revealing the contrivance that this is a game that we are playing pretend. It is advanced storytelling in the same way that the player didn't know what they were going to have their character do before the scenario started. You don't know what the players are going to do once they do. And if you say, oh, I'm not sure where this would go, you can say, let's take a snack break. Let's have someone else say what they're going to do. <laughs> or alternatively, what do you think should happen? One of the key assumptions I make is a lot of modern games, Aegon is the one that comes to mind, says we're all different kinds of players. Some people play characters, some people play the world. No, I invert this. We're all storytellers. It just so happens that my remit and your remit are a little bit different, and we get to draw on each other's boxes sometimes to make things work. You get to introduce an NPC as a player because it would make sense narratively. I get to introduce a concern or drive that your character would logically have as a byproduct of other things. You can negotiate from there. But I think Mage really dies if you don't have some sort of both social framework and expectation. And this is beyond simple things like having lines and veils and having an X card and knowing what everyone's okay with and not. But I think the mistake people make is they are not incremental enough in building their game world. They start out with, well, here's Supernatural New York. Here's 40 pages on it. My characters immediately went to Baltimore. Dink. That's <laughs> a lot of wasted effort. So you can either say, hey, folks, I have story here. And if you want a story that is rich and engaging, you should stay here. Or you can say you can only have one or two pages of notes and then go from there. Those are kind of my like specific starter points. Are you interested also in like how to deal specifically with people who've played uh, Dungeons and or Dragons? Uh, yeah, sure. A person at the new at the table may have a sense of role playing games. They may have a sense of the world of darkness. They may have a sense of drama or they may have none of those and all of them give different starting points the ultimate economy in dungeons and dragons is one of two things you use an action kind of as defined by your character sheet or you have a freeform interaction and that may seem like that applies to every game but in a game that has maneuvers tactics and mechanics and so on like that, players are used to looking at their character sheet and saying, what button do I push to have this encounter go the way I want? Mage does not yield well to that. Mage is perfectly fine with, this is just a barrier you can't overcome in the way you want to. The other thing is mage is frequently not subtle. Very rarely are there warning shots. The character I just made has seven health points. Porthos fits Empress, generally considered the strongest active traditional mage on the face of the planet, seven health points. <laughs> a handgun in the hands of someone who is competent easily does 10 damage. So the world does not give you the ability to poke at it in the same way. The other thing about it is we don't have the same kind of encounter design. We don't have things like challenge rating or level. So it is very hard to calibrate things for that. So I don't. This is something I learned from Invisible Sun, take a drink. And that is you can either plan a boss battle 
or you can have a string of related encounters where you have the chase, the meeting, and then the what comes out the other end because some games are just kind of boom bust in how they come out. But if you have like a 150 hit point dragon, like there's no way the seventh level characters are going to like one shot that where in mage you can just like oops all the dice and you're like well i guess you're taking 24 <laughs> points of aggravated damage because we all worked together and pumped a bunch of uh quintessence into it you're like well that and likewise on the opposite end you can suddenly have an entire party die in a building collapse and neither of those i think are particularly fun in some cases they're very mage mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but to me encounters as puzzles is kind of an important direction to go. So you're going up against an arch wizard of some sort, and she has a 10 point forces shield, but there seem to be explosives present. Okay. You light the propane tank on fire. Okay. You've taken down the shield. The building is now on fire. Do you want to deal with that fire? Cause there's other people that are still in this building. This warehouse is part of a functioning dock. That is the economic engine of the city that we're working in. Dungeons and Dragons usually doesn't care about that. No one cares about like, oh, you killed the dra- the dragon in the dungeon. The uh, ecosystem of the dungeon has now collapsed. Good job, Hands Akimbo Druid or something somewhere out right. there. Okay, the building is on fire. Do you help the people out? Yes? Okay, you're good moral people. They are all now witnesses to any magic that you do. So it is one of those things where it is a game of escalating complication as opposed to a game of strategic or tactical inquiry, at least in my opinion. And kind of the other thing that you always want to keep in your back pocket is if you're dealing with characters that have a bunch of different drives, if it's not like a technocracy game to kind of pick the stereotype where like you have a mission giver giving you a mission, wild coincidence is perfectly fine. So this Archmaster happens to be the person who killed your mentor. Why is Mark helping? Because Mark knows that this person has the tome they need to get fourth dots of forces, or it provides a lead on how to walk into the Shadowlands so they can talk to their grandparents again. Or this person happens to have the third rune required to unlock the key of knowledge, allows their familiar to speak English and not just paw on the door. Go nuts with coincidence. Otherwise, we deal with a lot of contrivances where it's like, well, my character wouldn't deal with it tonight. Okay, then you can go Ars Magica and suddenly play someone else that would be part of the playgroup. Or you can say, hey, you have this lead or something like this. I think that is a underutilized technique in games where it is not a quest giver giving you a quest. I think my final note on dealing with people who come from maybe more strategic or I don't, I don't know what F20 games is specificity is often the enemy. So for instance, I was running a one shot because all I do apparently is run mage one shots. And one of the characters is like, <laughs> I want to light the bad guy on fire, but I only have entropy. So I want my gun to bounce off these two things, go through the candle flame, splash him with wax and cause him to burst into flames. Generally, with specificity in a game, difficulty increases. And if someone were like, okay, you literally want to do that, you're going to need nine successes against difficulty 14 or something like that. And you're like, wait, that's literally not possible. I'm like, exactly. So the person says, I want to light the guy on fire using magic. I'm like, what does that kind of look like? He goes, I think it involves my gun and I think it involves the candle. Awesome. That I can roll with. We do the Arite roll. We do the firearms roll. You get three successes. You were able to shoot the the stand holding up 
the candles. It has fallen on their robe. Their robe is on fire. They haven't noticed it yet. Run with that. So the willingness to go from giving a vague direction, then seeing what the dice say, to see how that comes out, I think is a more fruitful approach that is counterintuitive for some people, as opposed to these are the exact things I want to have happen. If the dice say it, I get it. If the dice don't say it, I fail and I look like a doof. Mage really needs to exist in that area in between. And it is also a byproduct of a success-based game as opposed to a pass-fail-based game. And those are Mm -hmm. kind of like my first order things to keep in mind when you're dealing with people who may have come uh, from that world. Do you think that these days, because of the variety of different styles of games and by which I mean like different approaches, fiction first, or, you know, we're, we're way past the um, erroneous, but not terrible, at least to start structure of game as simulationist narrativist, that it's possibly easier to approach mage as you were talking about with the idea of you can't just take the book, you know, throw it at them and say, okay, make characters. And then you, the storyteller have to try to string them all together in some fashion. Uh, and so you get the, the super friends of mage, the Ascension, because you know, your underwater uh, focused verbena and your syndicate billionaire playboy who dresses up like a flying rodent. Why on earth would they ever get together? Something I, I found I was doing um, was the buy-in. And in that, it is a very disparate game. You've got all sorts of different character types that are going to interact together and play a, a party together. But you, as the GM for that, are almost obligated to say, but why? And you tell me, not me tell you, or... You do what I did before I read about that, which was here is a newspaper article or an event in a small town. Give me a character who would be interested in investigating this to the utmost end. And that way you, the storyteller, are now no longer having to uh, herd cats together to play the game or even play the storyline you envisioned because... Uh, yes, the storyteller is also a player and they have interests and have a game they want to play as well. But something really, if you come from a game where the playstyle is assumed, you are an adventuring party and it's super easy to have found a way for you all to be involved with each other because you met on the road, you survived and attacked by whatever faceless horde is being used this week. Here, it really is like, yes, but why are you working together? Are you all agents of the same organization? Why is your cabal together? What exactly is the reason for why you all hang out? And you tell me, not me tell you. I didn't find those as explicit in games outside of adventure fantasy because it was implicit in adventure fantasy. But now you'll have things like the idea of the character sheet as the GM's guidepost on what kind of game the players are interested in. You know, you've told them, yeah, you're investigating a small town mystery, but then you get the person who takes Firearms 5. Okay, well, they're probably going to want to use Firearms 5 at some point. So let's make sure I have a little bit of action in there to work with that. And, you know, again, it's nothing concrete, but it's something that you can still give some form of structure. But I do like a lot how you were talking about structuring and not in that like specifically objective way, but the different directions it could go in such that you're not railroading, you're not fully reacting, but it's like a a massaged guidance. A type of working together. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone is pulling on the same rope and tug of war, but at least we have the same enemy. Mage, except for the street-levelist 
of street level games, a mage is going to start with some notion outside of a prelude or some mortal play session or something like that, that there are kind of other mages running around. And this is a war for reality. So two things that we can't understate, and this is the weird thing I think it shares with a vampire, arrogance. It's literally a war for belief. How do you show that your belief is gooder? You out do someone else in something. It doesn't need to be hermetic levels, but it's at least a belief that your magic is legitimate and real and you wish it were embraced by more people. So there's at least that de minimis element to which your character in some way wants to, even if not proselytize, at least perpetuate a worldview. Worldviews come into conflict and need to be resolved in some cases. Sometimes we use the sphere of debate. Sometimes we use the sphere of gun. And both of those are legitimate <laughs> ways to settle that. The other thing is companionship. Vampires are solitary hunters, but they still crave the company of other people who know their own kind. I personally tend to do mage games that are very few mages. So, for instance, the city of Philadelphia has 1.5 million people. Its metro area has 5 to 7.5 million people, depending on who you ask. I have nine mages in Philadelphia. Um, When you are that rare, even if you hate someone, there's still a thing that you share. We have been touched in this way. And I think that creates fascinating connections and rivalries. There's a Nefondus in the area that means that like 11% of the mages in this area have fallen. <laughs> like <laughs> out of those nine, if one has stepped through the calls, that really right. says something. That's like a society yeah, yeah. with a high suicide rate or a high addiction rate. Like what is that telling you about what it's coming from? Now on the other end, if you have a game that has a lot of wizards in it, a lot of mages running around. Now there are things like political blocks and that gives you another tool for characters to get together. Your mentor knows this person's mentor. You're all members of the same faction. You're all members of the disparates or your city has a mage, the Ascension equivalent of a concilium, which is a mage, the awakening term for kind of a a council of mages in the area. And it's up to you as to whether or not that exists. But there's also going to be 10,000 subtle ways in which you talk to each other and coordinate. Maybe it's secrets that you drop in newspapers or weird signs and symbols that you propagate during with spray paint. But if people have access to the sphere of prime, they kind of have a way of just talking to each other. And that gives a starting way to give signs and signals to other players. And that is the start of what lets you coordinate action. The other thing is just have a big threat. If Mole Hectorus is going to wake from the underworld of your city and consume the souls of everyone in it, I don't care what faction you're in. Like, we're going to try and stop Mole Hectorus unless you're really pro-Mole Hectorus. But I'm pretty sure you can come up with that threat. If you want something a little bit more personal, another game to look at, since we're playing a game of what are games that aren't mage that we should be stealing from to make a game of mage more magey, a big one to me would be Fiasco, where the Mm -hmm. fundamental unit is not the character, it's the connection. So one of the things I'm working on is, again, I I do mage mostly as one-shots during conventions at this point. I've run 40 in the past five years or so. And as time goes on, I'm less interested in giving people pre-con, like pre-constructed characters, because that's boring. So (laughs) my question is now, what portion do I need to just give and what portion can we figure out at the table real fast? Because doing a full character sheet can take five, six hours. Like yeah. if you're really yeah. including paradigm and background and stuff like that. But if 
I have a whole bunch of cards on the table and you, Simon, say, oh, a librarian who's surprisingly good in a bar fight. And also I take this card that says conspiracy theorist with way more evidence than most people have. That gives me the start of a character and a whole bunch of dots. And then we go through a round of drawing connections. So as a storyteller, ask remarkably pointed questions. Simon and Sarah, you share a secret with respect to each other's magical practice. What is it and why don't you want it to get out? Okay, here's a connection. <laughs> you two have a common cardinal virtue. What is it and how has it gotten into you tr trouble? You share a near-death experience. What was it? You have an unswerving loyalty to somebody who is not in the city and not at this table. Who is it and why? You share a particular love of something in this environment. What is it? You two have a secret hatred for another type of night folk. What is the type <laughs> of creature and why? You are both in debt to a powerful person. How have you been able to elude them so far? You kind of get all these pieces on the table, and much like making dinner, you don't necessarily need to have a recipe at a time. If you have a well-stocked fridge, you can come up with a dish. And as a storyteller, that's kind of the direction I need to go, because sometimes at the table, I'm able to come up with an intricate puzzle, and other times I just kind of want to tug on those emotional strings, and other times we just want to, like, burn something. So having a bunch <laughs> of those little threads that we can tug on at any given time is fine. My rule of thumb is I never want more than four sessions to be about the same motivation or character or nemesis or place. And the- That sounds you, like a good number. Yeah. And the most I can do of, if you don't deal with this, everyone will die is six sessions. <laughs> so <laughs> you just kind of need a break in there. So yeah. those are all things that to me can help answer that motivational question without doing, you're all part of the technocracy or you're all working for the uh, the Council of the Nine, or you all have the same mentor, even though somehow you're all different traditions or something like that. <laughs> it's one of those families where you can tell all the kids are adopted, but they just never bring it up. And you're like, do they ever talk about it? Is that a th I'm really glad for them, but that's a to assemble a family. But yeah, a, a lot of other games are pretty good with that. And as you mentioned, buy-in. When you play a game of Cthulhu, the buy-in is so much more obvious to me right. than a game of Mage. Because people are like, Mage is a game in the world of darkness, so it's a game of horror. I'm like, sure, I guess. It can be. Yeah, it can be. If you want, like, if you want to be that guy, sure. But uh, ultimately, it's, to me, more of a game of urban fantasy. And <laughs> that is a much wider remit. So you need something to narrow it down a little bit. And that might be, all the games are going to take place in this place. You're all dealing with a shared common enemy. Maybe you don't know that at the beginning, and maybe you eventually figure it out. Or you have to go through that intricate process of weaving together character motivations and arcs. And for information on that, I recommend the Cypher system. Uh, Cypher system mm -hmm. is real good about having character arcs where your character declares what you're going to do. And you're like, you're looking for a tome. You're looking for vengeance. You're looking for money. Seems like I need to have a story that hits those three beats. And if I can, everyone should be on board. That's kind of the, the gimme there. A couple of things you're even talking about there, I want to maybe give some media examples, uh, which may or may not date me and therefore uh, maybe not as easy to find, but... Uh, the Anabasis by Xenophon. <laughs> nah, you can watch The Warriors for that. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, that would date me, actually. It's a good movie. Yeah, Warriors is great. So Hellblazer, the various writers who have done it over the years, and thankfully now it's back to being called, I think, John Constantine Hellblazer. For those who don't know, it's a urban horror comic book of magic and the worst person in the world being the anti-hero while acting like he's the best person in the world. But one of the things I've found it did really well over the various uh, story arcs, uh, I believe it was in Garth Ennis's ones, was it Garth Ennis? I think it was when 
John Constantine comes to America and he meets up with some of the other cultists there. It really had that small number of cultists and they don't immediately try to kill each other right away when they see each other. Why? Because there's only a few people who actually really understand what it's like and they may be enemies. And in fact, they are enemies often and they will try to screw each other over, but that's because someone's tried to screw them over in the past, but there's no like grand society of them. Uh, If you decide to take that track, you don't have to create a giant binder of NPCs to draw on. And therefore then everyone has to memorize who these guys are. And then the reverse Warren Ellis started it, Mike Carey continued it. Back in England, there are more sort of societies of mages and people know who the the total dicks are and who the people you can kind of trust, but not quite because everyone's still a, a, a magician. And every single magician will will stab you in the back if they if the opportunity arises. But it's still very, very subtle and it's not. It, it seems very manageable. Like they, there's still only a few like named or like face NPCs who you would deal with in that situation. I would say those are both good ones to kind of look at to get that idea. So are you familiar with Vampire the Requiem? I know that it is a game, and I know that people who like it more than Vampire the Masquerade are very quick to tell you that. One of the things it has in it, and I thought was uh, really well done, is it has a um, procedure called climbing the ladder. And that is something that you do once you've created all your your PCs for the game. And then you go through 12 steps, and for each step you get an experience point. So it's worth doing. You don't have to do all of them, but in doing so, you create NPCs and you create connections from them to both yourself and to other players and to other players' NPCs. And you create this web and network of characters who all have some connection to each other in some fashion or another. Not every single one of them, of course, but there's an easy web of relationships to work from. And when you do something like that, the story just winds up sort of writing itself. When I approached it, I had a sort of general idea of things I wanted to have happen if nothing, no action was taken on part of the players. But then I also used information they'd given me during climbing the ladder to give them stakes in it, relationships to it. You know, if someone's sire got involved in this, then they would probably bring them in in this, the character in in this fashion and they they would act on it. So having a system like that, I find really like more helpful than I realized that sort of thing is still adaptable to other games. And you can take that, you can then build relationships. So instead of sire, it's your mentor. Okay, how does it feel to be somebody whose innate gifts or learned power immediately isolates them from everyone else for the simple fact that they know what's going on and no one else does. And that helps you kind of get into the psychology of it. It helps you start thinking harder about things. And even when it comes to something like paradigm and belief, how do you reconcile it with that? Like what if you are a dedicated monotheist who all of a sudden awakens and now the celestial core seems really appealing, but then these other people also seem to fit some of your belief points. Where do you go with that? How do you reconcile it all? And and so on and so forth. The interesting thing about the climbing the ladder checklist is this inverts something that normally happens in a lot of mage sessions where a prelude is played out. Frequently that prelude Mm -hmm. is just between the storyteller and the player with their character, but this gives you a lot more information. So you have the steps confronting vulnerability. You're looking at a point in your life where you were at your most vulnerable. What did that look like? Was it before or after you had been embraced? What did it feel taking life for the first time? What was it like discovering a vampiric vulnerability for the first time? Who was your sire? Is there someone that you have started to cultivate possibly as another member of the embraced or what or what 
have you, what are the nightmares that you have for your city? One of the things that Requiem also does, this is outlined in the book Damnation City and a few other places, is, is kind of how to create the network. Yeah, Robin Laws, what, what? Can Robin talk about stuff uh, for life? <laughs> and, and as you mentioned, yeah, in Mage, we can do that. What was the first time there was a paradox manifestation? What was the first time you realized you had special powers? What was the time you thought your powers would be able to stop something and they weren't? And this mm-hmm. helps address what I consider to be one of the most annoying things in the Mage setting. In any game where you have the potential for great power and people aren't doing anything with it, I hate that and think it's <laughs> stupid. <laughs> so like people are like, let's pick another game. Uh, exalted. You're one of several hundred solar exalts on the face of the planet. There are creation crushing threats that you were essentially created to stop in the form of the primordials. And you're like, oh, and you want to spend all your time chasing down like this elf from a past life you had a crush on. You're failing the world. And, and Mage to me is the same way. Cultists of Ecstasy Revised, I think, has a section where there are three pretty powerful mages and they run a flower shop. That is remarkably lame, in my opinion. Unless you go through an exercise like this and say, oh man, what trauma did they encounter that this is the best that they can do? Right. Why are they doing running the flower shop? Yes. Is this quiet? Is this Mm -hmm. them being so afraid of the technocrat in their area or the nefondus in their area or the marauder in their area that this is all that they can manage? Are they just regrouping? And and this to me is a powerful thing, as you mentioned, in in, in kind of building out your setting. And it is available in Requiem 2E, and that's available in uh, where finer finer games are sold. And giving people experience is pretty great. If you want to use it to justify additional freebie points in Mage, that's fine. People talk about mages being overpowerful. Again, mortal with a shotgun. That's (laughs) that's really... (laughs) It's really hard to tell me that they're too powerful when they're easily stopped by like a traffic cop. (laughs) Right. I also think it's kind of missing the point too, right? Like, okay, yes, they are. I mean, it's the same thing with any superhero game. Well, they're immensely powerful. They can do these things. Okay. What challenges may they face in doing this, right? It's it's about changing your angle then. Like if you're going to write Superman, well, you don't write Superman just, I don't know, mowing down everybody that you look at and go, what was it? Peace on Earth, I think was the most spoken about one, which was... How does Superman solve world hunger? Uh, he can't. So you pick the things that give him a challenge. Yes, he can punch his way through a tank. He can't fix a societal problem because that's not what you can do when you have these fantastic physical abilities. How do you play a game where you can affect the world in all these ways, but then don't? <clears throat> One of the other things I want to talk about was in that sort of, you know, you're transitioning from uh, the world's most spoken about game to mage is gaming in the modern world. So I've talked about this on the on the show before, but my very first game of Vampire the Masquerade wasn't fully our, you know, we were young too, wasn't fully our first uh, modern game per se. We played some very disastrous games of Shadowrun beforehand. My character had a good drive score and he had a car, but Storyteller had me roll drive at every block. And so inevitably I crashed. That's poor storytelling. Now, that is the answer. Oh, to yes. That well, no, no. I'm not, I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that's not poor storytelling, but this is something in the in the modern world. How does this affect? How do you actually quote unquote simulate that in here? Now, that being an exaggeration of it all, what's your opinion on it? Like, when you take the modern world and then try to role play in it, do you hew as closely as you can to it and go, well, that's not realistic. That wouldn't happen. Do you err on the side of story? Do you err on the side of this is our 
world, but not quite. And therefore, whatever we want to have happen can happen. And then how do you manage players' expectations in that? It's the idea of like, you know, everyone has the Forgotten Realms campaign setting book, but then you want to do something a little different with it. I've never really had a problem with gaming in the modern world. The two things I run into are how notable is everything, how much pops up on social media and everything, and can a computer solve everything? So I do the World of Darkness, which is highly contemporary. It is invariably set in whatever year it is, plus or minus one. The biggest thing was in the World of Darkness, no Rona. Um, so didn't want to have to deal with the Panzerati. So... Um, you're like, oh, we get to play World of Darkness Vampire as an escape fantasy. And you're like, that's weird. <laughs> the thing to me is I, I think people overstate. I think they overstate technology. And I think you start needing to have some sort of mechanics to deal with the outlandish. So, for instance, in a world where everyone has a cell phone and you're doing vulgar magic, I do think you kind of need a narrative explanation for what that means. You can now have a game where there are magic groupies, where people know who you are and they think you're a street magician or you're doing hypertech or suddenly the work of the technocracy becomes much more important. And it's interesting that for reasons we don't fully understand, all those weird videos tend to get downgraded and deprioritized by the algorithm, which has created this weird file-sharing underworld. I don't know about you, but that sounds really cool. And that just kind of falls out the other end. Another thing you can do is you can modify the metaphysics of the game and say that part of what Paradox does is it kind of hides itself, kind of like the mists in Changeling or the Shroud in Wraith or the Curse in Werewolf or uh, the... I don't actually like Vampire. So there's a thing that probably <laughs> makes mortals not really like vampires it's, for some um, reason. It's actually a social construct of the masquerade, which is enforced by vampires. Oh, pardon me. As there, a result. There's an aspect of vampire nature that makes people shy oh, away from yeah, vampires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess just like low humanity and stuff yeah, or yeah. something like Lower that your, or the delirium. More. Uh, in where we're your humanity, the more yeah. monstrous you are, and therefore yeah. they're like, Ew. yeah. The other thing that that we can say is that people in the world of darkness are different, and then the question becomes why, and that's where I start having a problem. Like for instance, when you watch a movie that is a satire, and you want to root for someone, but the people are being idiots, it's real hard for them to root for. So for instance, I generally enjoyed the movie Sorry to Bother You. But it is in a <laughs> world where the most popular TV show is about people just getting hit in the face. And I get that it's a satire, but it's hard for me to then root for like a massive uprising against the corporate overlords when people are super amused by a show about someone just getting repeatedly hit in the junk or something like that. I'm like, I'm no longer interested in these people as a phenomenon. So you can make a dark, scary world of darkness where people who see things and share it just kind of disappear every once in a while. And there is that social contract, whether it's real or not. Maybe vampires do pick off people that notice masquerade breaches maybe delirium does take a few people maybe paradox does kind of scar people i think either of those directions 
is entirely fine. I also think it's interesting to remember the limits of human sense and memory. So I'm going to butcher this story, but I love it and I use it constantly for anyone who's afraid of looking like an idiot. There was a group of studies that were done in the, I think, 80s called the Lionel Richie studies. And the way this worked- I'm intrigued. Yes. It was one of those things where like, oh, you think you're part of the test group, but you're actually part of the control group. So they had like 200 students take like this basic math test. But one of them went in late. They literally gave them the wrong arrival time. Like everyone was told to be here at two. You were told to be here at 2.30. And they said, okay, thanks for participating in this experiment. We need to show who you, we need to keep track of who you are. So put on this shirt with Lionel Richie's face on it that is iridescent magenta and then walk into the room and then everyone else will be in shortly. So everyone else was actually already in it. So they have this in this giant amphitheater style, like college lecture hall, where it's a whole bunch of students looking down on a professor with a whiteboard or a blackboard or chalkboard or projector or something. Again, I don't remember the exact details. And this person walks in late through this miraculously loud door and they're taking videotape of it as it's going. And everyone looks up and see this person in a magenta Lionel Richie shirt walk in. This person is like terrified because they see 199 other people already started. They thought they were on time, but they were turned to be late. And now the study becomes the next day, the participants were surveyed. Did anything weird happen to you or notable happen to you during the exam? And 70% of people just say no. So right off the bat, 140 people did not think it was remarkable that a person wearing an iridescent magenta Lionel Richie shirt opens an incredibly loud door in the middle of a math test. When And they were asked, were there any disruption? They're like, no. The thing that's even better is they go back and they ask people who said yes in the future. They ask them after one month, six months. And after like six months, no one remembered so this is one, my encouragement, Remarkable. always do the drunken karaoke song that you want to. No one's going to stop you. Just make sure everyone can sing along with it or it's reasonably upbeat. If it's uh-huh. slow, you got to be good. That's all I'm saying. And maybe that's kind of how the world of darkness goes. Like we have no, the only thing we can use to verify our sense data is sense data. So like, I don't remember all the weird things on the daily basis that I filter out. And I don't know about you, but like, have you ever been looking through your phone for like a picture that you took of like a baby kitten or something like a year ago and you pass by all the photos of all the weird stuff that's happened to you that you just completely forgot about. And you're like, oh yeah, there was that guy wearing a chicken costume or like, oh yeah, that truck was really on fire. Depend a little bit on that. And that was a remarkably long way of explaining. You kind of got three ways of doing it, have magic conceal it, depend on human nature or create a world where people are afraid to tell. And maybe part of your mage game is giving people the hope to say that something weird is going on. And now the game is about dealing with that ramifications. Yes, this weird missing person is now being reported to the police and people are following up with the superintendent, but the person who made that report is missing, even though what appeared to be the human trafficking ring that was actually a, a sabot thing has been unearthed. And then chaos ensues. And that's the game of mage. <laughs> and then chaos ensues. To follow up on that, I noticed recently on Twitter, there was a little bit of discourse about games with an end and the idea of, uh, I'm going to pick a say, Band of Blades as an example, right? You're playing a fight and retreat back to Skydecker Keep or something like that. The game will end when you get there. It's not that it's a bad thing or anything like that, or anyone perceives that as a bad thing, but there seems to be this disposition towards games that don't have a set end, things that won't conclude. And one of the great responses was, 
because people, people in their responses were saying, yeah, like this, you know, why don't we do this more? Why don't we look at it as like, let's have a proper arc that ends. And then we play another game of the same thing or with a different story arc, or we move on to something new. But how many games have ended with, and then the campaign fizzled out because we ran, lost interest or you time or no one could schedule it anymore. Which is a worth death because everyone's kind of embarrassed or people are like, why right. don't we do that anymore? Well, I was still having fun. No, you weren't. The, why didn't you show up on time? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then, and then you're like, what did we accomplish there? Where that I would say applies in Mage is, well, you know, why don't you look at it as people see it, remember it and know about it. And gradually the world changes. What if you go towards if the Ascension War or something is a focal point of the game, why don't you go towards some sort of end game of, of Mage, whether it's a personal one and it's a personal Ascension, or you get go for the big, big firework ending and humanity ascends out at the end of the Invisibles or something to that effect. And everyone ends the game like, wow, that was an epic game that, you know, had an end to it. But it's not written that way per se. It's given as an option, but because it is, and I don't want to use the word sandbox because that's not the right word for it, but it's more open-ended and open concept, hence why we need to have buy-ins, hence why we need to have campaign or chronicle frameworks and so on and so forth to make it work and make it coherent. I don't know if it's just that it really isn't explicitly said, like, you can end your game where it narratively makes sense. People are don't want to really take the time to be like, you know, we could have an, end, like, an ending of some sort. Are you familiar with the uh, the nacho cheese chip cycle? The nacho cheese chip cycle. Yes, I want um, to be. You have nacho cheese, but you have no chips, so you go out and buy chips, and you eat you eat your nachos. Now you have chips, but no cheese, so you need to go out and buy cheese. They never end at the same time, so you're all, you're in this delicious perpetual cycle. Uh, stories are frequently like that, especially if your characters have their own motivations. The odds of everyone wrapping up at the same point is pretty low. Also for games like that, it's really hard to stick the landing unless the game hands you that end state. I was thinking of one of two versions. So uh, another question is, are you playing out a character or are you playing out a concept? If you're like, well, what are the ramifications of Entropy 5 thought manipulation on a society? You kind of play that out and you see what the result is. And that's kind of the basis of science fiction. What if, but... Like, in mm -hmm. a lot of cases, the characters are almost entirely secondary. In fact, whenever people are like, well, games need to start with characters. No, they don't. I can't <laughs> name anyone in any of the Isaac Asimov stories I loved. And I've reread them, idiot. <laughs> so, so, yes, they're character-based events. But, but sometimes you're just, you're just banging on the world. And that's the fun part. And that's why metaphysics can be fun and so on. So when you're dealing with arcs, it's really hard to stick the landing. But if there is a gun to everyone's head, then yeah, you can put it out. And maybe you have two follow-up sessions where you say, hey, you dealt with the fact the Liege of the Ebon Dragon had returned from the labyrinth and was attempting to reestablish control in your city. You thought that they were Nefondas, but really they're actually part of this older primordial group. And you were able to prevent them from forcing all the humans and the, the sleepers in the area to become their uh, dark penitent worshippers, as had happened 5,000 years ago in Babylon or something. It's hard for a story to stop there. You just save the city. That's kind of cool. <laughs> and there are some games, though, where that happens. So, for instance, what is it? Dark Heresy is a game mm -hmm. where set in the Warhammer universe where you're kind of part of this religious police and you can never get recognized for the work you do because you are 
irretrievably tainted and corrupted by the forces you come in contact with. Mm-hmm. Technocrats don't get to retire. But right. if you did want to do the that game that had an end, I think that's perfectly reasonable, especially if you have something like a season model. So for instance, you have a Chantry that is going to go through the four seasons. Spring, its foundation. Summer, its period mm-hmm. of growth. Fall, the period where it is coming off of its greatest triumphs. And winter, where it falls into kind of internal bitter fights. And we're going to do two rounds of that, and the space between each time is going to be a year. The problem with a lot of these techniques is they're not beginner techniques. You have to have a notion of drama. The characters have to have a notion of direction. The players have to know how to guide it, and it's really hard. We already made a mention to the Warriors. The game Aegon is like that. You're trying to get home, and you keep encountering these misty islands. And when you've done enough misty islands, you're done. Another thing, though, to consider that you bring up is do not hesitate, depending on what kind of game you want to play. If you are playing a game about the ramifications of power and so on, ramp up the power. Like, mm-hmm. give mm-hmm. people a dot of a retay every four or five sessions. If you're only going to pay, play 12 times in a year... Players aren't going to develop System Mastery. Give them Mind 4. Make them uncomfortable with the power that they have. I remember one group that I had before the Rona, uh, we were 30 sessions in, and we're like, okay, everyone gets a gets a fifth dot. And everyone was really uncomfortable with that. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do one more adventure, and then we're going to do something else, because I don't have anything more to offer in that world. So sometimes you're exploring themes, and sometimes you're you're exploring characters. One variant I was thinking of is... There are a bunch of ways to get to a low mage world, and one of the ones I thought of was once your eyes are opened, you accrue a retay at a certain rate unless you do something active to stop it. And at a retay 10, you poof out of reality, and that shard of the pure one is gone, and that's why this is the world of darkness, because human potential is gradually vanishing over time to become something else or something like that. Yet don't hesitate to, to pay around with mechanisms like that. Kind of another thing is have a framework in mind, and this kind of weaves a bunch of points together. To me, all superpowers in games come down into one of three types. One is, I want to be awesome at a thing and make this type of encounter easier. So when you cast Fireball and you kill all the kobolds, besides committing genocide and potentially a hate crime, depending on the world, you get to go, look at how awesome I am at this. And people go, yeah, you're really awesome at genocide there, Mark. Maybe you shouldn't be. The second thing you can do is you get to bypass a certain kind of encounter. For instance, Mind 4 just lets you really influence what someone wants. And if Mind 4 is essentially a way for a a player to say, I don't want to have to deal with this BS. I don't want to have to solve this stupid riddle. I don't want to have to deal with this petty bureaucrat. I'm getting what I want. And they bought it. And that's that's the quid pro quo. That's the trade-off that they get with that power. Mind 2 helps them influence someone. That's that first type of power. I get to be good at a thing and you get to see me be preternaturally skilled at flirting with this guard or convincing this person to let us in or getting this favor of someone. Mind four, you get to skip that. You get to rearrange someone's mental furniture. You get to edit memory. And that's kind of the second time you get to say, I don't want to have this kind of encounter. So those powers are votes. And generally you want to have that vote have a cost. So that way It just doesn't make it so we just don't have this kind of encounter anymore because that would be boring, in my opinion at least. The third type of power that you have in a game is you get new stories. Having a void ship, which are what the void engineers use to explore the other worlds, that to me shouldn't cost experience because once Mm -hmm. you get a void ship, you're now playing a game about having a void ship. 
There's very few problems where you're like, well, I'm going to use my void ship to solve this. <laughs> it's now a game about having it. Likewise, the game that you mentioned of Dungeons and Dragons, once you have the castle, it's now a game about having a castle. So consider if instead of just ending it, if you want to pivot it, and maybe some people want to have new characters, other people don't. Another thing to do is broadcast ahead of time saying, hey, we've covered all my key points where do you want to go? And sometimes mm. people are like, really like my character, I want to run with it. And other people are like, yeah, let's, let's try something new. And you get to all play characters that are somewhat related to it. But thank you for letting me give my unified theory of how I think powers work in RPGs that have superpowers. There actually is advice in the Story Tower section that says how to figure out when to end a game. So uh, good on M20 for including that in the, in the Story Tower advice section. It definitely ain't anything to have in there because nothing sucks more than a game fizzling out. And, and as a storyteller, it's hard not to take that personally. If you don't want to do it anymore, the players are going to feel weird. If the players don't want to do it anymore, you feel weird. So generally I try and get buy-in for something like three to six months ish. Like, Hey, we're going to meet every other Thursday for three months. If you can't make it, that's fine. If two people can't make it, we cancel and then kind of run from there. But that goes back to when we were talking about what are the layers of figuring out a game, that social contract layer, that expectation of who's going to be where and the what then, the importance of figuring that out ahead of time to kind of preempt those things. Okay, there are a couple of points that I know you wanted to bring up as well, outside the ones I wanted to talk about. In case you don't have it right in front of you, they were supremacy of paradigm, being graceful with crossover, and developing a sense of drama and theatrics. So which one do you want to start with? And uh, how will we argue about it? I think the supremacy of paradigm is kind of an important one for starting storytellers. Mm -hmm. So the question is, to what degree do I get to say, F you, I'm awesome? It is hard to develop a sense of internal physics for how sphere magic works. So at the end of the day, I try and remind players that in general, you get a die bonus, a difficulty cut, or you get to try something you normally can't, or your magic makes an impression on somebody those are generally like the four outcomes of a magical effect at the end of a day like you blew through the door that was functionally a die bonus on lock picking like <laughs> mm -hmm. you just did it through other means and now there's kind of a thing that goes out there uh, mage is not a physics engine you can't turn someone's blood to acid and instantly kill them you can do a vulgar matter life correspondence effect which is going to be difficult you have to have an effect for and at the end of the day you just roll damage like don't right. overcomplicate things like that at the end of the day at best an arete roll turns into a damage roll and it's probably a little bit vulgar so kind of keep that in your back pocket always think before I let my player do this, what does the world look like if everyone with this paradigm in the sphere can do this thing? This comes down to a lot of adjudicating effects and kind of what your guidelines are. So a lot of people are like, forces three, correspondence three, prime two, I'm just going to nuke everyone from my sanctum. Okay, you're now in a world where everyone can do that. What does the world of darkness look like if mage, as a phenomenon, is a lot of people just throwing forces effects from their sanctums? <laughs> that can be a thing. Mm -hmm. but magic has existed for millennia. People have figured some stuff out. These are yeah. high willpower, frequently centuries old people who want to unlock the secret of the cosmos. They can make a good kaboom too. The thing I try and keep in mind with that is what are the balancing forces? And I usually represent this as supremacy of paradigm. What do we do to the character who thinks my paradigm is I'm awesome at everything all the time? And that may initially sound stupid, but like 
I am the chosen of my people. I take on this mantle as part of a postmodern chaos magic practice. I am a sainted one. I am part of a magical tradition that says that we are quite simply better than other people. I am the chosen of a god or a force. It's really easy to come up with a paradigm where you're just kind of a badass. And that's fine. So I, I frequently try and say, what are the influences on the world? And how do we prevent magic from being just like, because I'm a badass? So one, we have to kind of develop that framework. What does that mean? Oh, okay. So you are the chosen of fate, as in literally the forces of destiny have aligned to push you forward. Well, you have to figure out the skeins of fate. So before you do this awesome thing, you have to consult the oracle. You have to look at a Tibetan demon bowl. You have to use, you have to practice huspomancy or something like that, or draw cards or whatever. And give me an idea of what you being badass at everything all the time actually looks like. Is it badass because you've always prepared or is it just kind of who you are? If it's the latter, it's probably going to be vulgar out in the world. And the other thing is you have interactions of forces. So like the whole point of the Arite system is it is you pitting your belief against the world. I tend to say that in the world of darkness, Something like 65% of reality is what anyone's thinking at any given moment. About 25% of reality is historical inertia, what has come before. And 10% are just kind of those laws of the cosmos. And just realizing that there are different things that feed into the consensus and what can be done, I think is useful to prevent a certain kind of remarkably uninteresting power gaming. The harder thing is dealing with people who don't think their characters can do anything. And that's a little mm. bit easier to be like, oh, okay, I understand that you want a sign from Indra before you act. What's the sign of Indra that your character is constantly seeing? <laughs> like, you're like, okay, so we have Indra's web, this infinite uh, thing of jewels in the cosmos. And you're like, oh, you see a cloud, Indra God, God of weather, and so on. That is your sign that everything's going to be okay. And this creates an interesting role-playing moment because you're like, why is Mark lighting on him if we're on a fire? Because he saw a cloud and he thinks that's <laughs> the sign that Indra said everything's okay. And now the rest of your group is like, glad you took out the vampire. Little concerned that that's the thing that showed you how to do it. I think in a good mage game, you all have willpower five and you can do magic because you think you can everyone's going to think everyone else is a little bit crazy. <laughs> Another thing is uh, a group can get very potent when the characters can work together. Generally, this occurs in one of two ways. They share paradigm, but I think it's also okay that if characters work together because they share practices. Mm -hmm. If one character thinks that harnessing the breath is giving them connection to the cosmic prana, and another person thinks that harnessing the breath is the way that they are able to get in tune with the 11 hidden dimensions as described by string theory that can only be noticed through hyper-observation or scientific tools, they're both still using breathing. So I think either one of those to me is good enough. M20 tends to bang on on you need to share paradigm, but the word paradigm in mage is real big right now. So for instance, a mechanistic cosmos covers both deism, 
and scientific determinism. They don't really overlap to me necessarily, but if we both use astrology as the toolkit, I really feel like we should get a cool scene where I'm doing calculations to 11 significant figures and you're rapidly going through your library trying to find the slightly erroneous star chart that secretly reveals uh, the bit of Tychoidean cosmology that you need to move the strings of fate in the direction that you want. So those are kind of vague, but those are ideas to either enable a group to do something they don't think they can or to prevent a character from who thinks they're all that from stepping on everything. And I think it's kind of important that a storyteller kind of have that Scylla and Charybdis, as it were, to uh, to moderate play. I guess the other one is that you had made mention of is the question of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's kind of two ways to take this. In the book Ascension, there is the idea that mage functions in a fractured cosmos. This was an idea that I think was introduced in Grant Morrison's Hypertime, which basically says that the game werewolf, vampire, and mage don't all take place in the same reality, but the realities that kind of cross over, large metaplot events send ripples through tied realities. If you want to have a game where your characters get to wipe the floor with vampires, do it. Your mages, make them the equivalent of Nutria or something like that. Some invasive species that you just wipe the floor with and that's cool. If you're going to do true crossover where you pull out Vampire the Masquerade, try not to let one night folk remove what's special about another night folk. And mages can frequently be too clever by half. M20 really tamps this down by if you um, try and use a mind power against a night folk who knows that it's coming and disagrees with you, they get their willpower plus six dice of counter magic. And that's going to stop everything. If you can overcome that, mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> but if you're trying to convince that Lasombra and they get to throw 14 dice, yeah. that's basically the game going, mm, no, don't. Don't do it this way. But if you're going to do that, try and be mindful of what makes each line special. So for instance, there is a friend of Mage the Podcast, Charles Siegel, who generally says, for instance, if you're going to obviate someone else, it is going to be vulgar. So for instance, my character wants to get in good with the vampire prince. And the vampire prince doesn't know that I know that Vitae can form a blood bond because for whatever diegetic reasons, we lost a member of the group to it. A relative of mine is bloodbound or something like that or a ghoul and I don't want to have that happen to me. So I use life three. So basically I get a second stomach and whenever I drink blood, it goes into that stomach and I don't actually get the blood bond. My two ways of dealing with it were, well, it passed your lips. You drank it, bud. That's going to count. But again, you don't want to really necessarily surprise players with that. So maybe you have that conversation ahead of time. You think your character is better. And that way it sets it up for a story where your character gets to try and break that blood bond. Complications that have interesting ways of being gotten out of in ways that are directable and temporary, I think are perfectly fine. As anyone who knows how comic books work, frequently the way a year works is giant event happens. We spend a year dealing with the ramifications. At the end of that year, everything things magically reset and a new giant event happens. Mm-hmm. And we've been doing that since the nineties and it's great. We all have fun. And sometimes <laughs> it's a year where guess what? All the X-Men have swords. Why? Cause swords are cool. And other mm-hmm. times we're dealing with the decimation of our people. And we're, what does it mean when there's only 198 mutants left on the face of the planet or, or what have you? So anything that just obviates that. So that life effect is vulgar. The cosmos knows that other night folk are special 
And you're going against that, and that's suddenly that 10% of reality that is just kind of defined. Likewise, if you're going to use, take advantage of a Garou's delirium ability to do something vulgar because people aren't going to remember it, another common one I see are people using Prime to create things to destroy, to make offerings to ghosts or something like that. It's pretty easy to come up with weird super friend scenarios, try and have a cost to it. And try and make it obvious that there's a reason that people don't do this. You're like, yeah, okay, you're creating things in the underworld. You're now essentially a fetter. And wraiths are very (laughs) interested in you. Or vampires are fascinated by this udblood bondable mortal. They need to die. Because Mm -hmm. that's a big part of what makes us special. But mages still get to be badasses. So my example of this is, I don't think mages experience delirium. And it's really cool to have that, not to say that running isn't the best response when someone goes crinos. <laughs> it's a very good response. But just to have the mage be like, oh, was I supposed to be impressed? Is fun. <laughs> you get to have that cool moment. So, sure. well, especially if you're playing mage. Yeah, if you're going to do crossover, try and be considerate. And just remember that none of the games have good crossover rules. So if any of your players says that's stupid, the answer is yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I would, I would use a different system were I to do that because I'd want something more unified. And one of the things that really kind of put me on that track was, it was actually from, from LARP, but playing a, a rank one werewolf in a, an MET game. Uh, this is back when it was Laws of the Night, Laws of the Wild, getting trounced by a neonate vampire when everything in Vampire the Masquerade says, it doesn't matter what werewolf you should be shitting bricks about this. And that's because you're using the wrong rules. If you want to do that, you need to go to the back, the appendix of vampire and find the rules for lupines. And then you use those because that is them in relation to a vampire. So they don't have razor claws as a gift. They have feral claws, protein two or whatever. They, have potence and celerity instead of spending rage they have blood points to spend as well because that's them in relation to the vampire using vampire rules so typically i find it difficult um personally to really wrap my head around crossover in some cases it's a bit easier and when i read uh, contagion chronicle i did find there's a lot of really good advice in there on how to make it work and one of the first things was yes you're going to dilute each game because you simply can't tackle all the major themes of these for each character while doing it for all the other characters too. A changeling in Lost is going to have a whole lot of stuff to deal with and Mage from Awakening is going to have a whole lot of stuff to deal with and we just don't have time to get all of it. But I do see why it's appealing and yeah, I appreciate that you talked about that in that sense um, because it was very good advice on how to do that if you're going to do that. This is what's worked for us or something to that effect to get what you're trying to do. And I think that's that's fair. So to the public at large, I am not completely shitting on crossover. Do what you want to do. It's your game. And kind of my three recommendations if you're going to do that, and a lot of people feel compelled to say, hey, it's the world of darkness. This should be kind of a unified. One, never call a spade a spade. Whenever a vampire appears in my game, no one says vampires. 
you never hear the term of a clan or a discipline, and that keeps it just weird enough. For instance, I had a game where there was a vampire that was simply referred to as the gentleman who had been in the city for 200 years and was utterly fascinated and was embraced around the time of Nikola Tesla war with Edison. And this was a vampire fascinated by electricity. And because we didn't use any of the common beats, this was a vampire that used a stun gun to subdue their prey, pulled out their, what they refer to as um, their bioelectric essence. Was it blood? Yeah, it was blood. Is that what he saw it as? No, because he was 130 years old and he was real kooky. And now we get this awesome thing that since we never use the term vampire, they don't know if it's a vampire or not. And now the characters and the players are wondering around if in Terry's game, there's this like electro infused group of people that avoid the sun, but also really know how to dress well. And I think that's just more fun. And there was another game I had where there was, there was a big bad that they were chasing. And one character realized this could also be a werewolf. And all the other people are like, do werewolves exist? And then they look at me and they're like, do werewolves exist? I'm like, I'm not answering this question. So the rest of the story was, how can I answer each of their questions in an ambiguous way that furthers the plot? But also it could be a werewolf. And then werewolves were never, were kind of never introduced. The last thing is the themes of the game can frequently shine a light on the other lines. So like the first time a mage sees a werewolf transform, and even if they're a life four shapeshifter, they're just going to look at that and be like, damn, yo, that is effortless without paradox. Is that what I want to be? And I think that's a really cool question of identity. Later on, your character gets to transform into whatever else. Maybe they get to transform into an orca for something and they don't need to necessarily be a bear or something like that. And how do those two get along? Like people who realize that they kind of share the same hobby, but in a different thing. Like a lot of people are like, ah, blah, 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 likes board games. You like games too. I'm like, no, I like titter pigs. They're weird and different. He's the normal one. Uh, I play make-believe. He plays actual games. And like when I look at Changeling and Mage, like Changeling seems to have this kind of magic that can get stronger over time. And Mage doesn't really have that. Mages also have the benefit of generally being liminal characters. They're not as tied to place. Also, like, a starting character can teleport. <laughs> like, right. you can just start with Correspondence 3. I don't know if in Changing you can start with Level 5 Flicker Flash by using Conveyance. Not Conveyance. What is the name of that art? Um, whatever uh, the wafer. Yeah, thank you. To just kind of go there, that's that's neat. So mages do kind of get to go everywhere, but to quote Urban Shadows GM advice, keep your moves shrouded in mystery uh, is mm -hmm. my uh, is my final recommendation if you're going to do if you're going to do the crossover. And so let's talk about drama and theatrics. As I mentioned, uh, an MET aficionado for a long long period of time. I feel I'm relatively, relatively familiar with the idea of drama and theatrics and drama kids and theater kids being into the whole wad scene. And I think that stands in the way of World of Darkness being more widely accepted. Mm -hmm. There are enough tropes about what an F20 fantasy game is that anyone can figure it out. There aren't enough tropes about contemporary urban mage fantasy for anyone to just know how it goes. And sometimes the mage system can be absolutely brutal and other times it's utterly forgiving. So you don't get that guide. So one of the things that bothers me in a lot of the mage books is do whatever is appropriate. I don't know what's appropriate. 
I was a chemistry major. I did musical theater. My answer to everything is the feelings build up until you burst into song. And if that's not enough, you start dancing. Like, (laughs) I don't have those intuitions. And in a good game, those will get handed to me. So, for instance, a game may have a ballast mechanic. The 2D20 games have momentum. They have momentum and threat or momentum and tension or something like that. And that gives you an idea of where the energy of the game should be. Mm-hmm. I have five points in the momentum pool. That means I get to do something really awesome. You have seven points in the threat pool. Something bad's going to happen. Right. And because those can be only be built up and spent at a certain rate, it's really hard to swing them one way or another. Like it's easy to get 10 successes. I don't know in any of the 2D20 systems if it's possible to get more than like two points of momentum at once. So when you do build up a lot, it's probably because you had a bunch of failures. Or if there's a bunch of threat, it's probably because you had to make a bunch of hard bargains. So it's real easy to see what's coming next. World of Darkness doesn't give you any of that. The guidance it gives you is not really powerful. So don't hesitate to kind of ask the players what an appropriate beat would be. One of the things that makes for great horror is knowing when you have the moment of comedic relief. One of Mm -hmm. the things that makes for great comedy is knowing, oh, when things suddenly got tense and you're like, oh, there are stakes to this. I'm now reinvested in the characters who have just been making dick jokes for five minutes or something like that or did an extended physical comedy routine. That's an intuition that is really hard to build. I don't know of a good way of handing it over. There are mechanics to deal with it like that momentum and threat model or drama systems, token economy. There's any number of game systems that try and do that. World of Darkness gives us none of that. And if you're not a theater kid and you don't have a strong influence on it, kind of figure out what you think your appropriate pacing is. One way I have of thinking about it is in your world of darkness is success something that is assured. Now it's a game about being powerful. Success is assured, but it comes at a cost. Now it's a game about cost and compromise. Success can happen, but it must be hard fought. Now we know that it's a game about planning and everything kind of points at that. It can be done, but you need to be exceptional. This is a scrappy game in a tough world. And even though I literally have the powers of magic, success is not assured. And then finally, you're effed. Each of those is fine. Figure out which one your game is. And when you're trying to figure out what is dramatic, figure out how to point at it. The other half of that is theatrics, which is what is the set and setting? Try and always have your characters describe at least one point of their magic, even if they're super new to the game. So it's like, okay, my character prays to a saint to try and heal this other person. Oh, that's cool. What does that manifest as? Like, what is the weird little thing that if someone were playing really close attention, they would notice and go, oh, that's kind of weird. Maybe the person smells like cinnamon. Maybe you can hear the flutter of the wings of birds. Maybe there's a very soft glow to it. And that builds into the theatrics of it, the set and setting. I think one area where storytellers can get a lot of free points is a little bit more description, is not hesitating, adding a little bit to what the magic looks like. When you heal another person, does it look like a cancerous growth has emerged to cover it? And now the person isn't so much healed as has merged with another organism. Or is it that intercessory prayer? Or is it hyper-accelerated healing? 
Or do you just wipe your hand over and reveal that it was actually just a, a surface wound that hit a blood vessel? So it's bloody, but you're not actually that hurt. And you just kind of assume that it was a bad thing. In F20 Fantasy, the spells tell you what they look like. I know what Bitebee's clenched fist looks like. I know what Cone of Cold looks like. I don't know what Forces 3 Prime 2 looks like. And that, right. if we're going to make, if we're going to edge out, we need to take advantage of the fact that we have superior theatrics that we can use if we're a little bit imaginative. So that to me is kind of the the two points of that. The theatrics, what does it look like? What is the set and setting? What is the mise-en-scene of it? Don't hesitate mm-hmm. in using theatric imagery or vocabulary. Talk about things being in shot reverse shot or the camera zooming in. This is all a language we're familiar with. In the same way that we all suddenly know what a multiverse is, that like everything everywhere <laughs> all at once is just like hey i'm gonna assume you can follow give me seven oscars and then it did and it was great (laughs) and that was also a movie that verified over the course of coronavirus that the muscle in my face responsible for tears forcefully exploding out of my face still happened um still it was excellent so yeah yeah I heard the best summary I heard was someone who said that movie was 30 minutes too long, but if you held a gun to my head and asked me which frame to remove, I couldn't tell you, which is kind of impressive. Um, Mm -hmm. And the other one is, as I mentioned regarding the drama, kind of figure out where you want that to be set in your world in terms of, is this a game about success or is this a horrible game about perpetual failure? That's a conversation you have with your table and that should kind of guide you in terms of what consequence looks like. The other thing is periodic check-ins. Is this too tense? Did you ever see the movie Children of Men? I didn't know. So it's notable for having this extended 16-minute scene without a break or something with it. It's it's one giant long cake, and people are like, it builds so much tension. Like seven minutes in, I'm like, can we just kill this guy and the baby? I'm tired. I want to get a soda. Um, Everyone has a different emotional break point. So until you have that intuition, ask. It kind of breaks down the contrivance a little bit. Like there's this idea we have in role-playing games that the storytellers come up with a scenario. It's fair. If we do our part correctly, we will succeed. And not only do we get to have a sense of satisfaction, we get to have a sense of victory. I don't think Mage is good at that at all. And I think when World of Darkness tries to operate in that vein, it really sucks at it. It's hard to do that kind of balance. You wind up fudging a lot of dice rolls. I would much rather have the dice land where they may and just have a little more robust story, but that's me. So one of the problems with Mage, it doesn't give you that dramatic toolbox. You kind of have to bring your own. So do not hesitate to ask your players and to plot out your beats. If you're looking for literally a book on it, Beating the Plot and Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Mm -hmm. Laws are two recommendations literally on how to map that out and being like, things have been real tense. We need to let it off unless your game is about extreme tension and so on. So there are toolboxes out there. If like me, you don't have that intrinsic sense of drama. Uh, There's been a number of games or uh, let's say writing styles for games uh, lately. I've found that make a point of aiding in of skipping the flavor text of a scene but just giving you the beats of five senses here's what you got and these are the relevant things and then let the players construct that in their own minds based off what you said and kind of keeping that in mind i would say helps with the theatrics part of it but you apply that to anything you want to describe so just remember you have five senses how do people experience these things Using the wizard, I'll pull an Ars Magica term here, but using the wizard sigil that you were mentioning, like, is there a smell of cinnamon in the air? Is there the beating of drums or whatnot? How does a witness, not capital W witness, but somebody there 
experience your magic in effect, either as the recipient, the viewer, or how do you as a mage experience it? Because when you do start to take in certain societal practices, I'm going to use as a, a probably a better, more overarching uh, term, say you're a cult, uh, cultist of ecstasy who is a, a flagellant of some sort, and you know they inflict injury upon themselves to heal somebody else or something to that effect. And or what are the, their senses telling them about how they experience their own magic and their casting of it? And then, yeah, you don't have to be uh, taking creative writing classes. You don't have to uh, been in drama to do this. You just need to say, well, how do you experience it? What do you see? And and it was funny that you mentioned the scene of comedy before scene of great tragedy and horror, uh, because a director friend of mine very clearly saying, we are going to play up this scene like it's the most over-the-top ridiculous thing ever, because in the next scene, someone gets murdered. And it's the whole crux of the play. And we're going to watch as they get strangled in front of us. And the more ludicrous this scene, the greater contrast we're going to have with the next one, they're going to stop, get uncomfortable, and the horror of it will be heightened even more. And the dice guide that. And that is a tool that frequently storytelling fails to consider. So you, we have that scene where it's full of pratfalls and we maybe quite simply we are pursuing someone through a slowly breaking candy factory or something like that. Our, our quarry has fled through this manufacturing district and literally people are slipping on banana peels. We get through to the end of it. We have the pratfalls. Then we have the next scene where someone, somebody who killed your apprentice, you're enacting your revenge you feel you're entirely in the moral right. You roll the dice. Now think in that frame, what do we want success to look like? Is mm-hmm. success now a quick and painless death? Is success literally choking the life out of them and getting the weird last gasps of it? Is a success realizing this isn't what you want and letting mm-hmm. go? Once we have that framework, what success and failure means will guide us. And kind of, as you mentioned, just describing it, we have a tendency to conflate affect with emotion. Affect is the set of bodily sensations we have. They are pre-conscious. So my favorite example of this is you walk in to a room and you see a pool of blood on the floor. Literally before you recognize that as blood, your body will start having a terror response to it. It is done at the CNS level. The frontal cortex has not even been engaged with. Your body has had a terror response. Now that you've had a terror response, your brain goes, I'm having a terror response. I should look around. Oh, dip. It's probably because of that blood. And that informs us in a lot of ways about who we are as a, as a person. But in a mage oh. game, just kind of describing the sensory apparatus and letting people make sense of it is a great way of elucidating paradigm. Like a character who has memories embedded in the Shadowlands and is trying to reach them. Three characters go into the dark penumbra and they feel the rush of cold water in their veins. Marissa's character is fond of this. She frequently sends her senses into the Shadowlands to talk with her deceased and ghostly grandfather who first taught her how to do magic. This is coming home to her. Helen is a paranormal investigator, on the other hand, has a calming response to it. It reminds her of the cold air of the operating theater, which was her first career before she started doing this. Malika hates the cold. It reminds her of winter, which is something she never knew in the Hawaiian Islands she grew up. Not until she moved with her family to a uranium mine in North Dakota did she ever truly experience winter. So cold to her is synonymous with homesickness. And by letting players fill that in, you have filled out the world lushly, allowed them to expand their character background, and potentially given them an opportunity saying, hey, if anyone really wants to go ham on this descriptor, I'll give you an XP or something like that, or recover a point of willpower, mm-hmm. or give some other kind of Benny, any number of ways of doing it. 
and you don't have to fudge the dice and you don't have to have a script. I'd say willpower is probably my favorite on that sort of thing. I, you know, you're going to need this. Yeah, um, <laughs> you're going to so, you, you get so, one back. Have it, yeah. Well, I mean, I, uh, I also just ran two sorcery games, and so the amount of willpower you can turn through in that game, not worrying about tying things up tightly when you're running a, a game of mage. And I mean, to me, I, I try to apply this to almost every game. You know, if we break the uh, the convention of what it's supposed to be, then we do. But to you, first-time storyteller out there, the players may well appreciate it and enjoy it. Don't worry about trying to tie everything up nicely at the end. But if you're exploring the emotional arc of the story, despite the fact that all these different things can happen, like we were talking about at the beginning of it with the players are going to do whatever they do and break whatever plan I, they will reach a conclusion of some sort. You know, chances are they're going to appreciate what they came to. And if you're worried about that, a thing you can do as a storyteller is, and this kind of feels like cheating sometimes, but it's terribly useful, is have your set of guiding questions for it was done. For instance, what did you find satisfying about this session? What did you find unsatisfying mm. about the session? What did you find entertaining? This guides your next thing, but... Also, we have, as humans, something called peak and end bias, where generally we remember the last thing we experienced as well as what the worst thing or best thing we experienced was. We rarely can influence that top and bottom as a storyteller. We can by having a set piece and having a certain thing that we really planned on and a bang-on description that was really good or a compelling opening speech from a, from a villain that may maybe the players really remember. But we can kind of modify that end. And by asking a question of, what did you enjoy about that session? You get to fudge that order. And kind of change how those memories congeal. So this is this is the closest I get to telling storytellers how to roll manipulation plus empathy against their own players. The postmortem, as it were, can be very powerful in trying to set that last impression. So if you think a session kind of ended with a, eh, another thing besides you can do that is, what do you think this sets up for next time? Mm-hmm. And now the players get to spinning their wheels on that, being like, oh, I think my nemesis is back, or oh, I think this clue actually points towards it being Vormos, or oh, I think may- we may be dealing with fairies or something like that, or is this just going to be another mortal again? That gives you yet more information as a storyteller to directly get at the heart of what will make your next session better. Or alternatively, if it was a one-shot, maybe what you do with your mm-hmm. next group. I'm running a mage in the Ascension 20th anniversary game set in modern day Sydney, and it's a lot to learn the rules on combat and magic, mainly because of how dense the book is and where to look for a certain rule. Have you had any troubles like this when you started playing? And I'm still figuring out how paradox works and when to give it to players, when to backlash and remove those points. The problem, I think, is not that M20 is dense, but that it is not. It's what, almost 700 pages or almost 600 pages? But like you could really (laughs) distill the core system down to like 45 when Dark Ages Mage, Dark Ages Fey, Dark Ages Werewolf all came out and Dark Ages Inquisitor. Sorry, let's not let's not leave out Dark Ages Inquisitor. The the publisher produced a free PDF that was just the core rules. It was pretty tight. It's like 45 pages and it's everything. And that includes describing what every level of every basic attribute is and how those core systems work. The thing I would focus on is, especially for combat, unless it's a set piece, there's a lot of ways of resolving combat. For instance, one of the ones you can do is you can summarize a whole bunch of fight with one combined role if you want to. And you could say something like, you're going to win in this fight but let's see how vicious it was. So you're some mages going up against mortals. The mortals have guns, but you have magic and so on. So you do something and you say something like, okay, 
highest in the group is going to roll dexterity plus melee, assuming that they were primarily fighting with weapons or something for that. For each success fewer than four, a member of the group is going to take point of aggravated damage or something or a point of lethal damage to represent that. If your games are dragging down there, feel perfectly comfortable compressing it. V5 is actually really good for that. It has a whole bunch of recommendations on how to do that, like the three rounds and out, players yeah. disengage, the characters disengage, the antagonists disengage, you use a roll to mop it up, or something fundamental about the fight changes. That's generally the way I do it. As I mentioned earlier, I tend to like combat as puzzle more than anything. Like, yeah, you can use your magic. It's not going to work the way you really wanted to do, unless it's really a scene about a magic fight or somebody using magic to kind of smack something down. The rules don't don't always need to be called on as you mentioned the person who was having you roll drive <laughs> frequently there's um, if you're just trying to get the plot moving just saying yeah okay <laughs> is perfect uh, successful uh, especially if it's a game about at either end of that capability spectrum if your game of mage is competence porn where you are the best humanity has to offer, maybe you're assholes about it, but you're the best humanity has to offer, don't hesitate to just being like, you get what you want, but there's a slight complication. If frequently I will do something called I call success shifting, where I'll have the person roll, but a botch is a failure, a failure is a success, and a success is an extraordinary success of some sort. And just kind of shift that frame one way or the other to do things. And that can just kind of really keep things moving, depending on what, what the nature of the game is. The other thing is, I don't hesitate to say, hey, I think there might be a specific subsystem about this. I don't know what it is now. How about we just resolve this with this? So for instance, my favorite example of this is, if you're having a game that's like Hackers, Book of Secrets has a bang up chapter on it where you can talk about how to pit a trinary deck against a mainframe and stuff like that. But like, that's another book that you have to pull out. There's a preamble. It's an extended role. It takes a lot of time and just be like, I don't remember this per right now. How about you roll intelligence plus computers against difficulty eight? And then we'll come back to it or something like that. Frequently, this is referred to as uh, rulings, not rules, uh, mm -hmm. where you say how it's going to work and you run from there. And if a player really thinks it like planned on it working another way, have them state that. Uh, this frequently occurs with sphere adjudication where someone's like, oh, I really thought with Forces 2 I could do this cool thing, or I really thought I could heal this person with just having Life 2. And I will almost always let players say, explain it to me in a dramatic fashion, take two points of Paradox, do it, but now you know. <laughs> and, and we can go from there. And I think diegetically that also makes more sense. I like to have a world where powers are kind of kooky. Don't hesitate to make yourself a quick reference. There's a document that's floating around simply called Sphere Clarifications, where somebody tried to go through and figure out the best description they could of each dot at each level. Mark Hope made a free set of those that are available on Storyteller's Vault. Charles Siegel made a slightly more detailed version called The Nine Spheres, I believe, that's $2 and goes over what all the spheres do. If you're interested in most of the non-combat systems, I've actually made a my attempt at coming up with a mage SRD. If you go to discord.me slash mage the podcast, Terry makes it SRD as one of the channels. That is my attempt to summarize as much of the mage system as I can in the most compact terms. It's not the easiest to read. It's the most compact. So there are references that people have made. Don't hesitate to make your own. Justin Alexander was talking about the use of a rule book in a game and what rules you should memorize, what rules you shouldn't. What he said was the rule book is there for you to learn the basic rules, the basic system, and then to memorize that. And then don't worry about all the subsystems. Don't worry about all the side things or the spot rules. When you need to know that, 
look it up if you think it'll come up, look at the drive and chase rules, you know, put a little post-it there or something, but don't stress about those. You don't need to be a computer and expert on it from the get-go. You learn it over time. Don't stress about it. Look it up. If it's a little slow at the beginning, you know, kind of how it goes. If you're worried about pacing, then yeah, rule rulings over rules and then go back to it. You learn it and then you say, okay, next time, next session, we're going to do it this way because that's how the rules work. And you know, I like them. So we're not going to make any modifications or anything like that. Do you have any final, maybe parting words for anyone new to the game who wants to be the storyteller in the group? One, you can do it. It's doable. To your rules question, again, I've run like 41 shots and there's entire systems that like I forget exist. So, <laughs> so don't, don't yeah. feel bad. Uh, the game is not intended to stand up to that level of rigor. It's not a problem that is solved in the same way more combat encounter based games are my one thing is almost out of that first session of what do you want what does a successful game look like monty cook breaks up types of gamers kind of into five categories or something like that you have people who just want to hang out with their friends you have people who want to explore a game world. You have people who want to develop a story for their character. You have people who want to achieve in the game world and build maybe something of lasting presence. And then you have the people who want system mastery and they want to be an expert at a thing and they want to be great at it. All of those are legit. I think it's perfectly fine to ask the players what they want. A little bit of starting questionnaire, I think, is is super handy. And, and kind of, you got this. The thing that always makes me sad for the modern storyteller is vaudeville allowed a lot of mediocre magicians, musicians, and actors to have a very comfortable career. Television destroyed that. And now all of the best people were the only ones who could make it, and they could make be very comfortable with it. John Philip Sousa did not like recorded music because he thought it would destroy the community band. I'll be damned if he wasn't right. The fact that 150 years ago, Philadelphia with a third the population had 40 community bands or something like that. But now we have access to the best music, the best recordings and reproductions mm -hmm. that have ever existed. I'm always worried in Titter Pigs that we're doing ourselves a disservice in a world of actual plays. I really like mm -hmm. the actual plays that like Monty Cook does because like, yeah, he knows the system because he made it. And he's pretty creative, but like he doesn't do voices or anything like right. that. I wonder if we're ever doing ourselves a disservice by seeing those things out there and comparing ourselves to that and going up against that. Because I, I can't produce that quality of stuff week in, week out. It's not a job for me. <laughs> so kind of my last thing would be if you're really intimidated by it and you know someone who can give you a one shot, ask them. I've done a half dozen of those for people who are just like, hey, we want to kick the tires on this. I'm an okay storyteller. I think I'm kind of evocative. I've run the same scenario a bunch of times, so I have an idea of how things unfold. I do have some of those rules just kind of at the tip of my finger, like the weird fact that if you have armor as a focus, you can spend one point of quintessence to allow something to absorb aggravated damage. Amazing. Why does that rule exist? I don't know. So like when you said mage is rules dense, I'm like, no, it's the opposite. It's sparse <laughs> and weirdly organized, but that's kind of fine. Find someone else who can, who can run it for you or you all piece it together. You piece it together kind of as a group. You solve the puzzle together. You solve the mystery as a team. And I think that's still 
quality role-playing, as I've spent more time with more systems, I tend to enjoy just the phenomenon of trying a new game for the purpose of a new game. I don't care if I'm never going to get to system mastery. So it is useful to be like, in the same way that like cross-training is a thing, if nothing else... If you have a group that tries Mage, at least try and figure out what are the neat things that we learned about it? What did it teach us about the games we've already played that we liked? And what does it show us as a direction that our group may want to go? So even if you don't think it necessarily will be successful, it is possible to define a game of Mage that you never come back to as a success if your group grows from the experience. And you know what? That's perfectly fine too. I don't get Vampire. It's the most popular of the World of Darkness lines. If you don't like Mage, it's not your fault. <laughs> it doesn't say anything about you. And this is from the guy who literally does Mage the Podcast. Magethepodcast.com. And that uh, that would be my... And keep listening to Simon. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. Terry Robinson of Mage the Podcast. Anything else you want to give a shout out to or promote? Magethepodcast.com, discord.me slash magethepodcast. Come in, ask some questions. We'll help you get up and going. And otherwise, go change reality. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for appearing on the show again. Uh, it's always a blast to have you and always insightful and full of riveting conversation. This has been Mage of the Podcast, where if you're running Mage for the first time, we're glad for you. Due to a paradox loop, that's actually every week for us. The show is made possible by our executive producers who include Ben Bendelow, Oracle of replacing D10s with D12s to give the players a little bit of a boost. Buck Gregory, Oracle of starting a first game with a bit of charades to lighten the mood. Chris Phillips, Oracle of playing a game of Shadowrun first, so M20 feels rules light in comparison. Guy Stewart, Oracle of having the players shift their character sheets to the person to their left every scene. Jay Widener, Oracle of replacing all dice rolls with magic 8-ball reveals. Joshua Hillerup, Oracle of using LARP for tabletop rules. Mikhail, Oracle of using tabletop for LARP rules. Puka G, being simulationist and requiring a willpower check if your introvert character needs to place a phone call to someone they don't like. Sean Gallagher, Oracle of being gamist and replacing combat with a quick game of Monopoly every time. The Crew of Erebus, Oracle of being narrativist and simply reading Blood Meridian instead of playing. And a Saint UX player, Oracle of just calling the whole thing off and getting ice cream instead. As well as Archmaster Andrew Edelstein, Archmaster Brad the Blue, Archmaster Dan Svensson, Archmaster Derek Semsek, Archmaster Leroy Bryce, Archmaster Morgan Aran, Archmaster Nathan Weaver, Alex, Alexia, Ambiversion, Anders S, Anon, Baderfi, Birdo, Blaze Hibbert, Blake Ryan, Brandon, Bryce Perry, Bubba the Pale One, Chris Blake, Sin Shotis, Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Darren Hennessy, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Eli Levenger, Eric Schwenk, Fraga Rock, Friedrich Owl, George Laura, Henry Kraft, Ia Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason Vines, Jason W. Briggs, Jay Gatsby, Jeff Bryn, Jenna F., Jervis Johnson, John Magnuson, Jolyn Andes, Laws and Stuff, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Chris Kinner, Leslie Weatherstone, Manel Canos, Matthew Prohl, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Nibero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, Rachel Grace, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rubem Joseph, Ryan Stray, Rob H., Ryan Kendi, Samuel Tobin, Savanessis, Starfish, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, Vincent Hamilton, Walter, William Connolly, or William Martin. If you didn't hear your name, shoot me a message. I'll make sure it's in there. Our EP shout-out this week is to Vincent Hamilton, and I assume all cities named Hamilton are named after you or your family. So here are some weird facts about global cities named Hamilton. Hamilton, New Zealand. Local legend has it that there's a mysterious creature called the Waitamo Cave Monsters residing in the caves near Hamilton. Descriptions range from giant eel to something more supernatural. Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. A quirky local legend holds about the Hamilton Witch, who's said to haunt the Devilish Punch Bowl, a natural waterfall and hiking area. Some claim to have encountered a mysterious woman in the woods. Hamilton, Bermuda. Legend has it that there's a ghostly figure known as the White Lady, who is said to roam the grounds of the Gibbs Hill Lighthouse in Hamilton. The story is shrouded in mystery and adds an eerie touch to the area. 
and Hamilton, Montana. Local lore indicates stories of the blue ghost, a legendary creature said to roam the Bitterroot Valley. Descriptions vary, but it's often described as a mysterious blue figure. Whenever I think of one of these cities, I'll think of you, Vincent. Rather listen on YouTube? Search Mage the Podcast on YouTube to find our full library there. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at magethepodcast at gmail.com or at magethepodcast on Twitter. We have a hop and Discord community at discord.me slash magethepodcast. Mage the Podcast is also on Mastodon at dice.camp slash at magethepodcast. If you like us, please give us a review on the platform if you're choosing or go tell a friend about us. Also go to matesthepodcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows. Now go change reality. Bye.